The word of God from Revelation. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And we had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls, of, bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the word of God given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God will stand forever. Please remain standing a moment longer as we commend this time to the Lord in prayer and I just want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open, too. Um, Father, we look into this beautiful world that you've created, and it is a glorious ruin. We see your glory and your fingerprints everywhere, and yet we see disaster, strife at home, broad even in our own hearts. And we remember there is real evil in this world and it is spiritually exhausting. So I pray, Lord, by your spirit, that you would give us endurance today. Would you just strengthen us, open the eyes of our hearts, bring encouragement. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It's uh, really good to be with you. If you're, if you're new, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, we've been studying this really mysterious book of Revelation. Last week we began studying chapter 4. Today it's chapter 5. And together these two chapters compose 
uh, what theologians call the central vision of the entire book of Revelation. And although Revelation is this book of great confusion and debate, what we know with certainty is that this book was given to, to infuse us and to give us hope. See, the central claim of our faith is that Christ, who died, lives again and reigns and is making all things new. And so this morning, we're actually going to see that promise illustrated by this vision given to the disciple John. And so John has been uh, caught up into, uh, he's been caught up into the throne room in heaven. He's in heaven. And uh, that word heaven, let me explain it just a little bit. Because um, you guys remember like the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he describes, he describes this guy who got caught up into the third heaven. And you're like, that's weird. That feels weird. Like, what's that about? What does that even mean? Well, in the Bible, there are kind of three reference of this word heaven. The first heaven or the first use of heaven uh, describes like the air or that space between like the ground and the atmosphere. So for instance, the Bible will describe birds flying in the heavens, right? Now, sometimes that word heaven has a slightly different meaning. It's the second heaven. And in our modern parlance, in our modern language, we uh, sometimes describe this use of heaven as like outer space. So that vast universe where the celestial bodies hang. So for instance, the psalmist will say that the stars at night are the realms of the heavens. But then there is this third heaven, or this third use of referent. And this is not primarily referencing a particular location, but it speaks to the realm where the immediate presence of God exists. When men and women pass on from this life, we are all ushered into the unmediated presence of God. This is the heaven that we're getting a peek into in our text today. And what we see today is it sets up a whole chain of events that is going to be followed up in the following chapters. What we see today kind of mimics this vision that would have been really present in the imagination of Israel, of the Jews. So like in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7, the prophet Daniel, he gets this vision of God. And God is depicted as the ancient of days. And in coming, riding on the clouds of heaven, comes this one, like the son of man. And so the ancient of days gives to the son of man all dominion and glory and all kingdoms to rule and reign with perfect righteousness and perfect renewal. And Revelation chapter 5 is describing the reality of Daniel 7. And here is why this all matters. The original audience who first received this, they lived in this chaotic world where they wondered if anything really, if anything they did really mattered. I mean, imagine like a new Christian who, because of their faith, right, that person or that family is being persecuted. And it didn't matter that they're trying to live a quiet life or just quietly raise their children or or participate in honest work. 
they were under the thumb and the persecution of the emperor, of the empire. And in that pressure cooker of life, under the oppression of the, of the emperor, they began to feel like all of their hard work to follow this resurrected Messiah, they wondered if it was all in vain. There was simply no justice in the world, no hope. Like, why do any of this? It all just seems to end bad. And I imagine that their questions have a really important analog to our questions. Like, how do we live in a world when our efforts seem to be failing? How do we remain hopeful when so much of our labor in the world meets resistance and opposition and undoing? I mean, why keep on serving and working and loving when it feels like we're losing and everything just ends in futility? Like, have you ever asked those questions? Well, Revelation chapter 5 wants us to live in that tension to see hope and not to cave into despair. And so this peek into heaven is meant to give us all the resources of hope. And where do we find these resources? We're in our text this morning. We're going to see it in three places. We're going to see it in the worthiness of Jesus, the work of Jesus, and the way of Jesus. Three W's. I did that on purpose. It's cute. All right. Worthiness, work, way. Let's begin with the worthiness of Jesus. So our text picks up from last week, and we're in verse 1. John has entered into this throne room, and he sees the Lord, right? The, the Ancient of Days. And in his right hand is a scroll, and it is sealed with seven seals. Now, you and I are used to books, right? Or sometimes what are called codexes. Those are like bound books. But back then, they, those didn't exist, and so they used these scrolls. And uh, there were really kind of two ways to seal them. Uh, they have these kind of, a scroll has two rollers, and between them is one long strip of papyrus. And to read through the scroll, you'd have to close one and open another, right, to get to the section. And, and the way to ensure privacy would be to, or the way to reserve the right of the reader, were to place these wax seals. This particular scroll that we see in our text has seven seals, which could have been used in one of two ways. It could have been that... You'd open, up the, you'd open up the scroll, you'd have a section, and you'd seal it, and then roll to the next section and seal it, and you'd do that seven times. Or, more likely, they, all seven seals could have sealed both of the sides together. Now, the seals could not be broken except by the person who the scroll was intended for, and, and, and this is to, to maintain the integrity of its contents. Now, theologians tell us that this scroll, like what is it? It is something uh, like the book of life, but it doesn't simply have like a list of names. It contains the very will of God for all of creation. And this scroll describes the, the, the plans of God to care for his people, to fight against evil, and to bring the renewal of all things. And so, the Ancient of Days holds, holds the scroll. And then in verse 2, an angel asks, Who is worthy to open the scroll or to look into it? So if this is like a last will and testament to kind of use that image, the question is, who is the executor of God's plan? Like, who can do it? 
And this question by the angel echoes off the chambers of the throne room. And what comes back? Silence. I mean, myriads and myriads of elders, kings, angelic creatures, and none of them. I mean, Gabriel is in the audience, right? Michael's in the audience. Who can speak up? Silence. Who is worthy? That's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, why does someone have to be worthy? That question is situated in a larger story that the Bible tells. And what is that story? And buckle up, this is your theology lesson for today. So the Bible begins with God's creation of the world and the crowning achievement on the sixth day of creation were human beings, our first parents, Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve were put in the center of creation and they were made in God's image. And being made in God's image means a lot of things, but in the ancient Near East, it had a very particular meaning. See, kings often had empires and territories, but it's not like there were like borders to mark out what belonged to them and where the next kingdom began. So how did you know if you were in their kingdom? Well, kings would have statues made of themselves, bearing their likeness. And those statues would would be placed throughout the kingdom so that when you saw the statue, you knew to whom that piece of real estate belonged. You knew what kingdom you were in. So God told Adam and Eve to multiply so that these image bearers would cover the entire created order so that you would know that every piece of the world was under the loving rule and reign of its king, its creator, and its God. And as image bearers of God, humans, we were then made to reign and to care for his good creation, to be co-regents, co-regents with God, sharing in his purposes for all that he has made. Humans are important participants. Of course, you know how the story goes. Our first parents failed in this calling and they committed what is tantamount to cosmic treason. They abdicated their role as co-regents and they tried to usurp the role of God by being their own kings. But God, he is kind and gracious and forbearing and he did not abandon his people, but he moved towards them, inviting them back into their God-given role of sharing in his reign. Now, if you read the story of the Old Testament, you can see that the failure in the garden happens time and time again. Israel goes into the new garden, which is called the promised land, and they abdicate their role under God and seek to establish their own rule apart from his loving commandments. And the whole story of the Old Testament depicts the failure of Israel to be co-regents with God in this beautiful calling. And then the story of the Old Testament ends, leaving us with this longing for something more. And so it's no accident that the New Testament opens up with the arrival of this second Adam, Jesus, calling to himself a new spiritual Israel, right? The church. So chapter five of Revelation is drawing on the story of God using humanity to advance his will. God has this scroll. This is his holy will. And God's plan was always to include humanity, his image bearers, to establish his purposes in the world and to receive his promises for it. 
And so here we are. Who is worthy to break the seals and to execute God's will? Which human in the sea of humanity can establish those purposes? Verse four, John says, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. No one is worthy because in Adam we have all fallen and we cannot fully represent God's character to the world. And this explains like the wild weeping and sadness. Like imagine like this very, very poor family, right? They're so poor that the state's about to come and take the children away, right? But suddenly this family like receives a letter saying that their great aunt has passed away. And this aunt was like a billionaire. And it appears that she was going to bequeath and give her wealth and estate to this family. I mean, all the pain of this family could be solved and resolved. And so the family is instructed to meet with the executor of the will. And there's a lot of excitement, right? Because this could change the fortunes of this family and their future. And so the executor confirms that the riches were indeed designated for this family. But then she begins to explain all of the preconditions that must be met in order to receive this fortune. And upon hearing all of those requirements, they realize they could never fulfill them, and therefore they will never receive this fortune. Imagine like their sorrow and crushed dreams and the pain of knowing what will come because of their, their state, of their poverty, of this condition. That's what's happening here, except it's infinitely sadder. See, to break the seal is to execute God's plan of redemption. And there is no one to do it. Who is worthy? Who is worthy to carry the hope of the ages? Who is worthy to carry the hope of every person who's ever been discouraged? Of every person who's ever faced a broken government? or broken families, of every person whose body has been wrecked by disease, who, who, by every person who has ever lost a loved person, who can carry the hope of any person who tr whose trust has been shaken to the core by a devastating sin? Who? Nobody is worthy to carry that hope, which means we are all destined to complete absurdity and despair. You can start to understand the tears now, can't you? Right? But then in verse five, the elder said to him, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, this, this Lion of Judah is this Old Testament reference to Genesis chapter 49 uh, that says that the scepter would not depart from Judah. The Messiah would come from this tribe. And then that root of Jesse language is this reference from Isaiah chapter 11 that the Messiah would come from the, from the family of Jesse, of David, that the, this promised one would be a Davidite. And who is this one? Like, who is this lion? It's Jesus. Jesus, this new Adam, the perfect son of man. 
It's as the, the book of Hebrews says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the son of God who lived the life that all of us should have lived. He perfectly fulfilled our holy vocation and calling that God intended for mankind. And as the representative of all humanity, Jesus, and listen to me, Jesus alone is worthy to break the seal and execute the holy and good purposes of God. And you and I are invited to embrace the worthiness of the Lion of Judah who has unlocked and guaranteed God's plan for history. When we look to Jesus, we know God's promises are certain. You hear me? They're certain and they are good. And therein lies that unbreakable hope. It's in the worthiness of Jesus. Now, the resources of hope are found in the worthiness of Jesus, but also in the work of Jesus. This is our second point. Now, something really strange happens between verse 5 and verse 6. So the disciple John is weeping. The elder says, cheer up. The lion of Judah can open the scroll. But then when John looks up, turns around, to look for this lion, he sees something different. Look at verse six. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, all of this imagery is really bizarre Remember, everyone, that what we are reading here is not intended to be visualized. It's intended to be theologically discerned. John is not intending for us to try to recreate a picture, but to seek understanding from its description. And so is Jesus a lion or is he a lamb? So sheep are talked about in numerous places in the Bible, but like 90% of the time, it does not end well for sheep. Like in the Old Testament, these sweet, innocent, cute little sheep are constantly being slaughtered. I mean, literally rivers of sheep blood pouring out of the temple when sacrifices were made to atone for the sins of the people. Because people were sinful, the priest would take an unblemished sheep, cut its throat as a substitute. The people would not receive the punishment. The sheep would receive, their, would receive it in their place, right? So they are this symbolic substitute. And so Jesus here in, in chapter five is depicted not simply as the lamb, but the lamb who was slain. Now, is a slain lamb weak or powerful? You can see that this particular lamb is described with seven horns, seven eyes, and the sevenfold spirit of God. And what does that mean? That the slain lamb is actually a depiction of incredible power. So horns are a symbol of strength. And eyes represent purpose, or perfect focus 
upon God. And the seven spirits represent the complete and perfect filling of the one Holy Spirit. So don't read that number seven like a tool for math. Okay, don't do that. Read seven more like an adjective signifying complete perfection. So the work of Jesus was not only to live the life that we should have lived, making him worthy, but also to die the death that we deserved in our place as our, as our sacrificial lamb, strong enough to purchase us and ransom us and to rescue us. This is why they sing, look, look at verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. That's his work. I read a story by one theologian who describes the power of this to the, to the mind of, and heart of the original Jewish reader. I want you to imagine with me uh, the scene in Exodus chapter 12. So the people of God are in Egypt. Plagues from God have continued to come day after day. And yet God's people miraculously have been protected from all these plagues. This happens nine times. Now God told his people that for the final plague, a dark angel of death will come upon every home and take the life of the firstborn. Unless that house was marked by the blood of an unblemished lamb. So literally, lamb's blood needs to be on the doorpost of that house. And so there's these two neighbors. And the one goes to the other, and they're like, hey, like, how are you feeling about this? And the other says, you know, pretty scared, honestly. I have no idea what to expect. A lot of crazy things have been happening. Water's turned into blood, frogs, locusts, gnats, boils, days of darkness. And now we're being told to put blood on our doorpost? I'm scared. And I'm pretty uncertain and unsure as to how this whole thing's going to work out. I, mean, I just don't know. How about you? And the other guy says very genuinely, very sincerely, and very humbly, our God is faithful, and I will put the blood on the doorpost, and I know that he will deliver us as the federal head of my home. Not me only, but my whole family will be protected. And so the two guys part ways, they both put blood on their doors. The sun sets, the angel comes, and the sun rises. And here's the question. Whose home was spared? It's both. Like, don't you see? Like, salvation comes by the blood of the lamb. And you must know that your salvation is not tied to the strength of your faith but by the object of it, nothing but the blood of Jesus. All your hope and the hope of your entire family is tied to your embrace of the finished work of the slain lamb who has ransomed you. That work. And now there is nothing that can take you away from him. No power of hell, no scheme of man. We sing about this. Your hope is squarely tied to the work of this lamb. Can you feel even just a glimpse of the excitement and hope 
that would have boiled up if you were transported into this throne room, seeing the lion and the lamb. That feeling is precisely what explains verse 9. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the, the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Their hope explodes into song and worship. And they lay their eyes on Jesus, and they say that he is worthy to take the scroll, point one. They lay their eyes on Jesus and proclaim that, for you were slain, and by your blood we were ransomed. And they see his finished work, point two. And then they keep singing. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. It says, And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. The way of Jesus. Point three. When the Bible speaks of making us a kingdom and priests, it's speaking of our calling as followers of the Lamb. Remember, when God made us in his image, we were called to be co-regents, to, right, to expand his garden, to expand his kingdom, his reign into the world. That is to say, to be agents of the creator, to draw out even more glory in this world, right? more beauty, to cultivate it, and to reign with Christ. This is what the text is speaking about when it says that we were given a kingdom, and a priesthood. See, priests in the Old Testament had a very specific role to represent the character of God to Israel, right? They were mediators between God and Israel, the people. And now, in the same way that the priests played that function, we collectively, as the church, are the priesthood between God and the world, representing him and his character to the world. We're demonstrating to the world what he is like. And what is he like? Well, he conquers his enemies by dying for them. He becomes rich by giving away his riches. He is the first by making himself last. And power is absolutely redefined in the kingdom of God. The one who has all power, who is the Lion of Judah, has exercised that power by becoming slain, a slain and slaughtered lamb. And this is an absolute surprise to the disciple John and to every Jew who would have first heard this revelation. See, the Roman Empire was the competing entity of power and who can topple that empire? And so many people expected God's kingdom to come through military conquest and force. But Jesus shows us power is radically redefined and unexpected. God's future kingdom is inaugurated through the death of the one who's bringing it about, the Messiah. And you and me and our children, and all those who are in the house, babies too, right? When the angel of death passes over, we are then all reconstituted to become this 
collective priesthood that declares to the world that in the kingdom of God, where God is reigning, the world is very different. Power is different because of the way of Jesus. And this is perhaps the most hopeful thing our neighbors and loved ones could hear about. In a world that looks like justice like never prevails, where wars seem to never cease, where our homes are always riddled with one crisis after another, one disappointment after another. We are being told here that the way of Jesus, the way of the Lamb, means that no matter how bad things are, they are never ultimately what they seem. A slain lamb is the most powerful force ever unleashed in this universe, the power to raise the dead and to make all things new. And we, as a people, have this profound hope in it, in this, and our hope, as I said last week, and our hope is our gift to this entire world, the entire watching world. If they can catch just a fragrance of this ultimate reality, it can bring life where there was ashes and death. And it says in verse 11, the living creatures and the elders, the angels, numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And those praises are starting to make a little bit of sense, aren't they? Like all of it. Hope is boiling over into worship. And let me tell you, those hearing this, they're going to need it bad. Because the people who are receiving this letter, they know that their faithfulness to the slain lamb might result in their martyrdom. They may die because of their faithfulness to the Lord. You know, sometimes people say that following Jesus makes your life better and that there are these benefits. And, and, and listen, I do want to say there are benefits of holiness and righteousness. Like when you walk into that life that Christ is inviting us to, there are sweet, beautiful benefits because that's how the universe is made. But I want you to be sure that you hear me. That following God doesn't make everything easier. And in fact, it is really, really hard. And it could cost you everything. In the following chapters, what we're going to start with next week, we're going to see these seven seals broken open and chaos is going to break loose. And as that chaos unfolds, remember that the scroll is in the hands of our Savior and our King. He's the one who is executing the will and he knows how it will end. And in fact, he's determining it. The fate of all Christians is in the caring hands of the powerful 
slain lamb. Fam, your destiny is tied to the destiny of your Savior. He is worthy. His work is finished and perfect. And his way is completely different than any of us can even dream of. And so if today you hear his voice, do not disregard it. Whether in tears or in laughter, let this vision form in you unbreakable hope. And so let's end as the scene closes with verse 14. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped.